1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored and blessed to be in dialogue with my guest today, Ehud Olmert, the former Prime Minister of Israel. We will be discussing his new book, Searching for Peace A Memoir of Israel, published in Washington, D.C by Brookings Institution Press, 2022. Ehud, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any childhood events that impacted the adult you would later become?
2: You know, considering the fact that I'm retired after being uh, uh, in the central uh, political stage in the state of Israel for over 40 years. Uh, I don't need to introduce myself from my childhood, but I guess for the American, American audience, uh, this is uh, uh, a must. So I'll say that I was born in a, <clears throat> in a place in, in what is now known to be a Roman castle. That was uh, built uh, thousands of years ago. And at that time, uh, before the creation of the state of Israel, my parents, together with 27 other uh, young families, uh, lived there without uh, electricity, without running water, and were members of the uh, then underground uh, organization, the Irgun which was uh, led by uh, the future prime minister of Israel Menachem Begin. Yes. And uh, that's where I was born. Uh, Today, uh, there is uh, um, subsequently after many years uh, uh, with uh, archeological diggings, they uh, found and rehabilitated a huge amphitheater And now this is uh, one of the most popular amphitheaters for uh, musical concerts, uh, in uh, particularly for uh, jazz and rock, uh, in the state of Israel. But so when I was born, and I said that I was when I was young, and I was asked where were you born, and I said in Shuni, Mm. everyone looked at me like I was, you know, some weird. Uh, and I had to say what it was. Now, when I say that I was born in Shuni, uh, people look at me and say, were you born in the middle of a concert? Uh, because uh, it is now well known all over the is- uh, Israel. I grew up uh, subsequently in, uh, in, uh, nearby. <clears throat> My parents moved uh, after the creation of the State of Israel. They moved into uh, Binyamina, which is few kilometers from uh, the uh, Shuni, that Roman castle, which is in the slope of Mount Carmel, uh, near Binyamina, between Binyamina and Zichon Ya'akov, which is the center north uh, of the State of Israel, and uh, there I grew up. I uh, was a member of the youth organization beitar which was uh, part of the Revisionist Party, part of the Herut Party, which was led by Renachem Begin. Uh, so, uh, And my father became a member of parliament when uh, I was 10 years old in the year 1955. So politics uh, was part of the uh, uh, agenda of our home uh, for, uh, uh, since I was a child. And uh, we were four brothers. Uh, uh, we, uh, at the beginning, uh, life was very difficult and uh, very uh, modest uh we didn't have a bathroom in our home where we moved to and uh, uh we didn't have uh, all the uh, elementary facilities but uh later as uh, life developed uh, uh, my parents uh succeeded to uh uh build a larger house in uh, where we lived and uh we grew up in a in a small place, which is slightly far away from the center of the country, and um, life was very pleasant, very nice. Uh, uh, we lived in a small community uh, where everyone knew everyone. You never locked the door of the house because uh, you know there was no reason to lock the houses now something that of course will not be practiced anymore by anyone, even those who live in that same place. I think at that time, the number of people living in this uh, little township was less than a thousand. Uh, now, uh, I think uh, there are more than, uh, it's, a, it's a larger township of close to 20,000 people living there. And it's uh, more urban in comparison to the uh, uh, village type life that we uh, entertained at the time that I was a child. Um, I grew up in a family that uh, was very well known, particularly because my father was a member of parliament from early, uh, my early childhood. But life were very humble, very modest, very simple. Uh, uh, for me to uh, go to Tel Aviv was a day of a great excitement because uh, there were no ways that you could easily go from one place to the other. There were no private cars at that time. The only uh, way to go out to uh, the bigger town was by uh, the uh, train. And uh, the place where I lived in, Binemina, was uh, had a train station and uh, there were trains going to Tel Aviv to the center and to Haifa to the north. And uh, this was the only connection that we could have to go to town, uh, which uh, may have occurred to me twice or three times a year. This was a great event. Uh, So normally uh, I would say that I grew up as a village boy in a small place, relatively isolated with lots of friends that were living together and uh, lots of uh, families, which I mean, lots—you uh, know, uh, fifty families or more—that we all knew each other, and that uh, we had very good uh, communication and and uh, friendly relations. And uh, that was until I uh, eventually I, I studied at the elementary and high school in Binyamina, I did well in the uh, high school. Uh, and then I went to the army, and then I went to uh, study at the Hebrew University, and that's where I emerged out of the relatively loneliness of a small village in, uh, in uh, Binyamina to the large city of Jerusalem and the campus of the Hebrew University in the mid-60s, uh, from 55 years ago. Uh, life was entirely different at that time.
0: What formative experiences in your life inspired you to become involved in politics?
2: Well, I guess that uh, mostly probably the fact that uh, I grew up in a family which uh, politics was very much part of its life. My father was a member of the Yagun, which is the underground movement, which was part of the fight for the creation of the State of Israel, led by then uh, the commander of the Yagun later to be prime minister of Israel, Menachem Begin and uh, he himself became a member of parliament uh, when I was 10. And so politics and the national agenda and the uh, public events, national events and international events were part of the daily talk in the house uh, amongst all of us, my father, my brothers, myself, my mother, and uh, many of our guests and uh, very uh, often there would be guests coming to visit my father my parents who were uh, famous people, members of uh, the government, members of the Knesset, uh, that were my uh, father's colleagues. Uh, And so, uh, you know, being part of the public scene was something that I grew with. And I guess that that had the impact that ultimately, injected in, in my mind the awareness for uh, public uh, affairs and for the needs of the public and for the events of the uh, country and uh, the need to influence it.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers?
2: Well, look, uh, I'm, I'm probably well at this stage now, there are only three former prime ministers living. Yes. Less than the number of living former presidents of America. Yes. America, I think you have about five uh, former presidents alive other than the incumbent. In Israel, there are only three. And until when I wrote the book, there were only two former prime ministers, myself and Ehud Barak. Uh, And uh, I think I served more than any of uh, the others. I, I was elected nine times uh, to the Israeli parliament. I was elected two times uh, to be mayor of Jerusalem in a citywide elections. And uh, the the most important, the the largest and the most important city, of course, in Israel, maybe one of the most important cities in the world and so on. So, uh, and I served as the 12th Prime Minister of Israel in the history of the state of Israel in the last 75 years, there were only uh, now 13 prime ministers from Ben-Gurion to Bennett.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I am amongst the, uh, these 13. So I, th- I thought that uh, the experience, the uh, events that I was part of throughout the last 40 years in my nine terms, at in my two terms as mayor of Jerusalem, as my term as uh, prime minister of Israel might be of interest. Uh, And I wanted to leave uh, my memories uh, to uh, my younger generation in my family. I have five uh, children and 12 uh, grandchildren. And I thought that it it would be uh, good and meaningful to leave them in an orderly manner. Uh, My memories, my uh, stories, my achievements, my failures. All of it put together, so that uh, they will be able to learn it and to uh, relate to it in whichever way they will find it. And of course, I can't say that the uh, larger picture—I mean, the larger public—would uh, also uh, maybe of some interest. Uh, I think that this is the first time the former Prime Minister of Israel, who is Israeli-born, wrote his personal memories. Uh, Menachem Begin uh, said uh, years before he retired that the day will come that he will uh, 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 write his memoirs from the Holocaust to Resurrection. This was the title of the book that he promised to write. He never wrote it. Hitzchak Shamir wrote uh, a brief account of uh, his period uh, in different capacities, but this was not a more broader uh, presentation of his background, of his uh, days in the underground and his days as a prime minister. So I may be the first, definitely the first that was born in Israel that wrote a more comprehensive memoirs of his uh, life and of his uh, um, the duties that he fulfilled in different capacities in uh, the country. And uh, that's why I thought it might be of some interest to people uh, other than my uh, children and grandchildren.
0: Yes. You alluded to your children and grandchildren who... Uh and your sons-in-law in, in the book, Shula, Michal, Dana, Shaul, and Ariel, Hillel, yes. Roni, Alma, Ido, Naama, Itamar, Amalia, Amitai, Avigail, Daniel, Yotam, and Miriam. Can you yeah. tell us about them? Can you mention some of their character <laughs> traits? How does Listen, it feel to be a grandfather to so many I'm grandchildren? I'm ready,
2: ready to talk about my grandchildren, but as you just listed their names, there are twelve. If I talk about each and every one of them sure. separately, that will last more than the time that we have sure. uh, agreed to uh, hold this meeting. Sure. Uh, there are, uh, they are all of them are Israeli-born, uh, which is uh, fascinating. They are, I think that they grow in a, the an environment which has characterized also the growth of their parents, which is completely open uh, for uh, everyone to express his desires, his thoughts, his uh, ambitions, uh, his interests. Uh, There is a complete freedom of uh, thought and expression in the house. No one is supposed to uh, be in favor of something or against something only because of the expectations of others, his parents or his grandparents. So uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, relations amongst our, uh, our grandchildren are very friendly and very intense. Uh, we meet a lot, we uh, talk uh, with each other, we uh, spend time together in different uh, ways. Uh, the, uh, the grandparents with the grandchildren, the parents with the, uh, uh, their children, the, uh, the uh, uh, relatives, you know, the uh, uh, the that uh, are more or less in the same ages. We have a couple that are nineteen, couple that are eighteen, couple that are 16, 17. So all of them are cousins that. Uh, find interest in each other and they uh, cooperate a lot. So we have a very uh, lively and warm family. And I'm very proud of it. by the way. I think that this is perhaps one of the greatest achievements of my uh, wife and myself, that uh, uh, one of our daughters uh, came to us just uh, last week we were celebrating the Batmishwa of uh, Daniel, uh, one of our grandchildren. Uh, granddaughters, and uh, our daughters say to us, you know, you were really great parents, and I asked why, this is quite a surprise, I didn't know I was such a good uh, parent, so they say to me, there was always a sense of freedom and independence in the house, everyone could spell it out in every way he wanted, it doesn't matter what your, the position of the father was, or the mother was, or any one of the uh, children, everyone could speak up to say what he thought, to do what he wanted to do, to go where he wanted to go. And there was uh, a, a sense that one can do everything that he wants to do, which was great. And I'm very, I'm very proud of it. Uh, all of my children are very uh, accomplished, very, very talented and, and very different from each other very different. Each is exceptionally gifted, and yet they are very different from each other.
0: What did Menachem Begin's election in 1977 mean to you personally? And in your perspective, why were the consequences of his re-election in 1981 more significant than his first victory in 1977?
2: Well, number one, uh, the election in 19, until 1977, the state of Israel was perceived to be by the uh, uh, citizens, by the residents of our country, to be the labor, the state of the labor party. Yes, the, 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 there was the perception. The perception was that the country is doomed forever to be governed by the labor party, by the labor party, which originally was called Mapai. Yes. The, the, Party of the Workers of Israel, which turned out later to be the Labour Party. But this was the Ben-Gurion Party in all its different phases. And what happened in 1977 was against all the expectations, all the uh, the uh, uh, anticipations that the Likud will be the largest party and will take over and will be elected Uh, That was beyond belief. There was a revolution, an evolution, but in a revolutionary way. Overnight, elections, Menachem Begin comes prime minister. Now, for people like me, who grew up in the country, where for many, many, many years, because of our affiliation these days, Irgun, with the Herut party, with the Beta youth movement, with the revisionist party, with all of these different parts of what was a national camp, so to, to call it, in the state of Israel. Uh, and we were always somewhat, you know, on the sidelines of history of the state of Israel because we were not part of the mainstream. The mainstream was the Labour Party, the Labour Party, everything that was associated with the Labour Party. So, after all these years that we grew up with this sense of, of deprivation or of rejection by, by the mainstream, that suddenly this, the sidelines took over the mainstream and became the largest party of the country, was dramatic. That's why, I mean, that is the meaning of what happened in 1977. And I was fortunate because in 1977, I was reelected already for my second term. And I was at that night on the same room in this small room with Menachem Begin and the leadership of the Likud party when we were uh, announced that uh, we win the elections when the exit poll were uh, presented. Uh, and that was a very very unique moment which I still remember with excitement. Now, in 1981, it was even more significant. Why? because had we won in 1977 and lost in 1981, then the elections in 1977 would have been interpreted as just an episodical event of no historical significance. Okay, the Labour Party failed one time, they recovered in 1981, everything went back into its route. No, in 1981, the fact that we were, winning again the elections and we taking over the i mean continuing the likud led government meant that the revolution was completed what started in 1977 became a reality that has changed entirely the life of the state of israel in 1981 when it was uh, we were uh, winning again that's why the elections in 1981, in my mind, were very important. I remember I I, I got a tip from someone, uh, normally in Israel, the exit polls are announced at 10 PM when the battles are closed. And uh, I got a tip from someone that was in the uh, headquarters where they counting the exit polls before 10 o'clock. And he called me and he told me that he could, has an edge over the Labour Party, but that edge was sufficient because we knew that we had uh, uh, guaranteed partners to form a coalition. So what we needed was just to be ahead of the Labour Party, even with his one mandate. So when I heard it, I uh, called uh, Menachem Begin at his home, where he was waiting for the outcome. And I told him, so he was very excited, and he said to me, you'd my son, that's how he usually called me. Ayud, my son. This is very important. Revolution has been accomplished. And he was right.
0: Thank you for sharing that. What are your memories of former Prime Minister Itzhak Shamir? What was his personal character like? And can you share some of your memories of him?
2: Itzhak Shamir was a, a leader of the uh, stern gang. Stern Gang is uh, not a very popular name in the context of an historical uh, uh, discussion about the creation of the State of Israel because they were a more radical organization. Uh, and he was a very brave commander of this organization. He was uh, a son of a family which uh, didn't last, didn't escape the uh, Holocaust, and his parents were. Uh, exterminated. Uh, he came to Israel, learned in the Hebrew University, and after the creation of the state of Israel, when he was emerging out of the underground movement, he was uh, he joined the Mossad. And he became a very high commander in the uh, Mossad and a very very important commander in the Mossad. And uh, subsequently, he had some business and then he uh, was called by Menachem Begin to be his right-hand person. And subsequently, he uh, stepped in his uh, shoes when Menachem Begin retired. Now, the person that I knew, Itzhak Shamir, was the most humble and modest person you'd imagine. He was... uh, We were always teasing him and we were laughing about that he was uh, a secret keeper like no one ever. Uh, We always used to say that when he heard the reports of the uh, uh, intelligence in the Mossad, he doesn't even share it with himself because he doesn't want anyone to know. Uh, And uh, he was a very strong guy. He was made of steel, of platinum. Nothing would have... Shake him uh, or, or intimidate him. He was courageous, he was strong, he was probably, I'd say, knowing I knew personally almost all of the prime ministers of Israel. I'd say uh, I uh, I didn't know personally Shoret, I didn't know Eshkol, I didn't know Ben Gurion personally. I met him once, but that doesn't mean I knew, but I knew all the rest of them. I knew uh, Golda, I knew Robin, I knew, uh, of course, Paris, I knew uh, Begin, I knew Shamir, I knew uh, Sharon, Barack, Netanyahu, myself. Of all the prime ministers of Israel, he probably had the strongest personality. A man made of steel, unwavering on, and no one could have ever uh, intimidated. i would never forget one time I was in a meeting I was at that time, I think, a minister uh, in his cabinet, and he met uh, with uh, uh, the secretary, uh, uh, James, the the, um, uh, secretary of state of the United States, James Baker. Pardon?
0: James Baker.
2: James Baker. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, James Baker, and uh, James Baker was pissed off with him because every time. Uh, he said he came to Israel. Uh, Sharon was building a settlement.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: that irritated him and the president. And he was sitting there in that meeting in the prime minister's office. And we were just about four of us or five of us, including the American ambassador at that time. I think Tom Pickering. And, uh, and uh, James Baker looked at Shamir and talked to him in a very unpleasant manner in an arrogant way. Like I'm the big boss that came from America. And uh, I must say, I'm very famous, James Baker. I found him subsequently to be a very decent, very important and very meaningful person. And we became very friendly. But at that time, you know, when he talked to the prime minister, the prime minister bowed a little bit towards him and looked at him and said, Mr. Secretary, you shut up. You'll never ever dare talk to, uh, like that to the leader of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. Wow. This was an unbelievable moment. Wow. And, and this was Shamir. Now, he was more practical than most people thought he was. He, 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 he was known and is still remembered by many to be a man who never uh, agreed to any political compromise. I think that had he lived today, uh, in uh, the uh, present reality, you would have been in favor of uh, lots of compromises in line with what I have uh, mm-hmm. uh, proposed. Uh, uh, but at that time, his reputation was that he is not ready, that he's obstinate, that he's stubborn, that he's tough, that he's an extreme hawk, that he's a right-winger. He will not compromise for anything. Uh, and uh, the truth is that he never trusted Arafat. And as long as Arafat was the leader of the uh, uh, Palestinian organization, uh, it was very difficult for anyone to make any deal with him. And I think he didn't trust him, but he agreed to go to the, uh, to the Madrid conference that was organized by President George uh, uh, Bush Senior and James Baker uh, in, I think, October of 91 uh and uh, he participated in that uh conference and uh, the fact is that during the uh, first gulf war when everyone expected Israel to respond to the challenge of the Iraqis that were shooting uh, scud missiles over Israel Shamir had the wisdom and the, and the, the strengths the inner strengths to restrain uh, Israel and all the generals that came to him and asked we should respond, we should shoot uh, at the uh, Iraqis and he said Americans are fighting we will not interfere and he he, he didn't interfere and subsequently he received a lot of uh, uh, praise for his ability to restrain his natural impulses as well as the demands of the Israeli generals that wanted Israel to respond to the uh, shooting of the uh, SCART missiles on Israeli cities. So uh, altogether, Shamir was a very unusual uh, person. Uh, I used to live where not far, my personal residence was not far from where the prime minister, the famous Balfour residence of the prime ministers of all Israelis, where I lived also for a few years when I was prime minister. But before I moved to Balfour, I lived in, down the street not far. And every evening almost at that time, Shamir would call me on the phone, not for a secretary, just direct to my home and he'd say, hey, Wood, uh, are you free? Well, you know, I was a minister, prime minister calls me, what should I say, that I'm not free? So I said, no, I'm free, of course. He said, why wouldn't you stop by? And almost every evening I'd stay there, uh, come to his uh, residence and uh, sit there for hours. And we would, we will make the telephone calls across the world to everyone that the prime minister either didn't answer his phone or that he was uh, uh, interested to talk to. And you know, at that time, you you can't believe that we live like that. But this is a reality that is still in 1990, 1991, 1989. We live. There was no secretaries after eight o'clock, so every evening Shamir would come home with a copybook uh, of uh, you know of elementary school with names and numbers that his secretary dictated to him and he wrote it in his circular uh, handwriting and he would say okay let's call them let's call President Bush uh, or let's call uh, President Mitterrand or let's call uh, eli bizel or let's call uh, other guys that uh, we were curious to uh, speak with and uh, everything was very very modest very humble and uh, but very clear mind and very clear very focused uh, as a person uh, and uh There is one thing which is very moving, very exciting, which I can never forget. Uh, One time uh, there was uh, this terrorist attack on a a Jewish uh, uh, synagogue in a Jewish center in Istanbul. Yes. Uh, uh, You know, a huge city, a big city, a very exciting city. I love being there, Uh, but. Saturday, Jews were praying Saturday morning in the shul and the uh, shul was attacked by uh, uh, terrorists and a uh, few of the uh, Jews that were praying, they were killed and the blood was just flooding uh, in the uh, sidelines uh, uh, there. And uh, of course, televisions uh, immediately television crews uh, came to uh, to the uh, site and uh, there was a, one interview which was very moving. There was an elderly man standing there in front of the synagogue where he was at the time of the shooting, where wow. near him people were killed uh, and he was trembling, an old man trembling. And the uh, anchorman uh, asked him are you afraid why don't you live here so he looked at him and he said i'm not afraid so the person asked him how can you not be afraid look what happened he said i'm not afraid because there is the state of israel and it will protect me now when i saw it in the news in the evening i was uh i was very excited because the whole meaning of what Israel is all about in a way is the fact that we can provide not only security but the sense of security Mm -hmm. for Jews no matter where they live that they know that if worse comes to worse there is still the state of Israel which will protect them. Now only five minutes passed since it was broadcasted on the television they got a telephone call uh, I took a uh, call and the voice of the prime minister and he says to me, did you see it with excitement? Wow. And I said, sure I did. And I understood immediately what he was talking about. And he said to me exactly what my father said. Wow. And what his father said is that when he was taken by his neighbors to the execution in the Polish township where he lived, Mm-hmm. There were few that were with him. Wow. You know, have a couple of hundred Jews that were taken by their neighbors to be executed. And some of them somehow succeeded to uh, save themselves subsequently. And one of them told him that he was walking with his father. And he said to the Shamir's father, are you afraid? And he said, no, I'm not afraid. My son is in Israel and wow. he will take care of all of them. And when Shemir heard this coming from the mouth of this elderly Jew trembling in front of the synagogue, which was attacked, and nearby him people were killed, and he heard the echoes of the last words that his father said before he was executed by the Nazis, and he shared it with me, this is something that you can't forget.
1: Wow. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
0: Can you describe your final experience with, with Prime Minister Sharon before his stroke? And can you tell us about his personality in light of your memories of him?
2: Look, I knew Sharon for maybe what I'd say now 50 years, okay, but at that time when, uh, let's say, I was close to him in different ways for a few decades, I was never his ultimate intimate, I have to say. I was friendly with him, but he always suspected me because as he once said to me, you know, had you and Dan Meridor, you know, one of the most distinguished Israeli, uh, political persons. There was a minister at my time and uh, before, uh, together with me in different governments. And uh, uh, Benny Begin, the son of Benachem Begin, he said, "If all of you guys were supporting me, you would have been prime minister long ago." Then he said before he became prime minister. And I said to him, uh, "Arik, the problem with you is that if one doesn't support you a hundred percent, you fight against him a thousand percent." And I said, I can't support 100% of what you do or what you say, I sometimes disagree with you. And I have to spell it out when I disagree with you. I'm not, uh, you know, I can't uh, uh, shut up only because uh, you may not like it. So, uh, you know, we had, uh, but during the uh, Yom Kippur war, I was within the entire war and uh, I saw his courage and I saw his leadership. And I really think that in many different ways, uh, he was a, an unbelievable hero. Uh, one of the greatest military commanders and heroes in the history of the State of Israel. Uh, one couldn't but admire him. His tenacity, his determination, and his ability to withstand all the pressures and all the difficulties, and all the constraints, and move forward and never, never, never surrender this was something that was a a, a lesson for life uh, for me. Uh, So, you know, we were were friendly uh, all together, but I could not say that I was uh, in the very inner, innermost group of his friends. Uh, There were others. But I think that he had a certain respect for what he considered to be my uh, ability uh, to, to do things. Uh, the fact that I was uh, elected mayor of Jerusalem and defeated the, the legendary Teddy Kollek with a margin of 25%. And I became the mayor of the largest and the most complex city, maybe not just in Israel, but in the world. I think that added something to my uh, position or my status with him and uh, he wanted me to join him to the government. I, I, I was not part of his first government from 91 from 2001 to 2003 but towards the elections in 2003 he asked me to join his uh, national politics again. Uh, from, from the uh, local politics, from the municipal politics. And I also wanted to do it because at that time I already understood that uh, the uh, dream that we can keep uh, Jerusalem uh, in its uh, municipal boundaries as was uh, uh, arranged after the Six-Day War is a dream that will never come, that will never be realized in a way that will add respect and, and, and peace to the life of our people. So I I thought that I have to uh, change the arena where I uh, can uh, uh, defend my uh, thoughts and uh, perceptions about the future of Israel. And it couldn't be in the city hall again, uh, considering the change in my attitude. Uh, So uh, it fitted me and uh, he was very happy. And he said to me, I really want you to be next to me so that when the day comes, you can slip into this position without any difficulties. Uh, I, uh, this is not something that you say public. So I'm sure that there are many, still many people that were considering themselves aspirants at that time for this position, which uh, would say, no, Sharon would have preferred me to be prime minister. The fact is that I was vice prime minister. I was second in command. I was the number two guy in the cabinet, and uh, I enjoyed his trust. I was absolutely loyal to him. I respected him. I uh, sometimes disagreed with him, uh, but I had always respected him. And I think that, regrettably, in the last couple of years, he was very, very tired, and I think very sick. Very sick, so he he the, with the last last effort, he still uh, executed the disengagement from Gaza, which was a formidable o- operation. He was very inactive in the actual implementation of this decision, but only his political acumen and power made it possible for the. In, for the disengagement to take place. Without his political support, no matter how active I was and many others, it would have never been carried out. So, uh, and I, I, I was very helpful to that time. I was really the one that was the main spokesperson for the disengagement from Gaza when Arik Sharon sponsored it, but was not in a very uh, in a very uh, uh, good position to actually execute it. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, and then, of course, came uh, the last few days. I never forget that uh, on the last day, on the fourth of January. In the morning at 10 o'clock, we had a session at the prime minister's uh, 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 office for, uh, for uh, uh, to discuss something about a certain aspect of the situation in the north of the country regarding uh, Lebanon. And, uh, and uh, I was uh, part of this discussion And subsequently, there was a a, a ceremony in the prime minister's office in that same room where we were before uh, to uh, conclude the sale of the shares of the government in the Leumi Bank, which is the largest bank, uh, historically, the most significant bank in the state of Israel, uh, to uh, buyers uh, from America. And there was this ceremony. Now. Sharon was scheduled to go to a uh, medical treatment the next day. So since this medical treatment uh, required uh, anesthesia for a period of time, uh, it was scheduled that the authorities of prime minister will move to me the next day for a few hours until after uh, Arik is awake from this uh, medical treatment. So after the ceremony in his office, he's asked me if I'd uh, have coffee with him in his room. Uh, and I was there uh, sitting with there, and uh, we were talking, uh, we were discussing the political uh, situation, the possible uh, 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 developments, considering the controversies in the Likud at that time, and so on. And then I had to leave. So I stood up, and for reason that I don't understand, I didn't. Uh, I understand that. I, I still don't understand. I I never hugged Chirac. Chirac was too big to be hugged, you know. I came to him, I hugged him, and I said, "Hey, General, you'll be all right tomorrow. Just let me know when my time is over and you are again in in full uh, power." And and I I said goodbye, and he said goodbye, and this is the last time that I saw him. Because uh, later in the evening, I got a telephone call from the secretary of the cabinet, and he said, uh, he asked me where I was. And I was at a restaurant with uh, some friends from uh, the American Jewish leadership, which were uh, involved with uh, Birthright. And we were discussing the next evening uh, event, which I was supposed to be the guest speaker there, of Birthright. And suddenly there was a telephone from the secretary of the cabinet who asked me to, uh, he said to me, Sharon lost his conscience, he's on his way to the hospital, I suggest that you will uh, go home and wait for every eventuality. And then at 11 p.m. on that evening, I got a telephone call from, again, from the secretary of the cabinet and the attorney general of the state of Israel, and they informed me that uh, Sharon uh, was declared uh, unconscious and uh, therefore incapacitated. And that uh, as a result, all the powers of the prime minister were transferred to me automatically. And from then on, I am the acting prime minister of the state of Israel. In about 10, 15 minutes, there were banks on the main door of my house. So I went down and I opened the door in a stream of security guys, six, eight security guys, rushed in, stood up, saluted and said, uh, sir, we are the security of the prime minister and we are now in charge of your security. I said, thank you very much, relax. You want to have coffee? If not, wait outside, everything will be all right. And since then, my life has never been the same.
0: As mayor of Jerusalem, what steps did you take to attend to the needs of the Arab? community of East Jerusalem, how did you handle your relationship with that community? And how was your approach to that community different or similar to other mayors of Jerusalem?
2: Uh, The big difference between me and Terry Kolek before me, there were only two mayors until after me. But Mayor Colek was the mayor of the city from the uh, 1967 when we took over the other part of Jerusalem until I was elected, and then I was. So there were no other uh, uh, mayors to compare with. The only mayor I could compare with was Teddy Colek. Now, Teddy Colek was had a, he was uh, an unusual person, an extraordinary guy in many different ways, and. Uh, lots of admiration, particularly you have to remember he became mayor at the time that the city was uh, integrated for the first time in the history of uh, 2000 years or more. So you can imagine what an excitement it was and what a prestige it brought to the mayor and Teddy had brilliance of knowing how to to, uh, make use of this uh, euphoric attitude to advance the city and uh, his, his personal status. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that there was very little done in order to improve the quality of life of the residents of each Jerusalem. And the problem was that on the one hand, we have integrated them and we made them Israeli residents, not citizens, but residents. That meant that they became part of the state of Israel. But the quality of life and the quality of the living and the quality of the infrastructure and the quality of the buildings and the quality of the sewage system and the quality of everything was like a third world uh, country. Mm -hmm. It was terrible. And nothing, almost nothing was invested in order to improve it. Now, I invested maybe in the 10 years that I was mayor of Jerusalem, I invested 20 times more than what Kollek invested in 28 years, that he was mayor of Jerusalem, and 25 years that he was in charge of the uh, 26 years that he was in charge of the east side of Jerusalem, where the yeah. Arabs live. Uh, I did a lot more because the, through the years the, the, there was a deterioration of the status of the east side of Jerusalem, the quality of life, the quality of the buildings and the infrastructure, and the roads building the schools and whatnot. And so it became more urgent while I took over. And I did a lot more, but the one thing that I found and I really invested, I built 18 uh, new uh, schools uh, as against zero that was built in the last in the 26 years before I became mayor at the time that the East child of Jerusalem was part of the state of Israel. I built uh, uh, community centers. I improved the roads, and all of this made a very small difference, because so much was still lacking. And then I understood something that was very hard for uh, me to uh, even say to myself, but I had to be honest enough in order to understand it. That if, if we can't make the residents of Jerusalem, which is the upfront symbol of the realities that we try to recreate, if we can't make even appear similar to the quality of life of the Jews, how can we even dream of controlling the millions of Palestinians? Like what, second-class citizens? That led me to the inevitable conclusion that as much as we love to have every part of the territory and that historically it is true to say that the West Bank, what is called as the West Bank, has really always been part of Jewish history, that in order to make peace with Palestinians, we have to separate from them. And in order to separate from them, we have to pull out from territories, in spite of the fact that we thought that these territories were part of Jewish history, because the only way (laughs) to compromise and to make peace is to give up something that you consider to be yours. And that still in order to achieve something that is bigger (coughs) than the possession of territory, which you consider to be used, you're ready to do.
0: In light of what you are alluding to, do you mind commenting on your relationship with Mahmoud Abbas what misconceptions <laughs> about Mahmoud Abbas does... Finally,
2: lunch, we come guys and they ask me the challenge. same questions and based on my, the Hebrew edition of my book. Uh, so uh, now uh, I think I say it in the English edition uh, that uh, uh, we, uh, as a result of which we are uh, just talking now, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, I think, wants peace. He is more of a friend than of a foe, he is more of a potential partner than a potential rival. He is not a member of the Likud party, he is not a member of a Zionist group. He is a leader of the Palestinian people. And sometimes it's very hard for some people of us to understand that he's not one of us, he's from the other side. But as being someone from the other side, it still remains true that he for many years, for all his life has been against terror and he spelled it out in the most explicit manner, even when Arafat was the leader of the PLO and he was saying it to Arafat and he blamed Arafat for spoiling the chances for ever achieving peace with the Jews because he sponsored terror. So uh, I, unfortunately, You know, he didn't have the guts and the the courage at the very end to uh, sign the, uh, accept the proposal that I gave him, which was far-reaching, perhaps more far-reaching than anything that was ever proposed by any Israeli prime minister in the history of the conflict between us and the Palestinians, which I proposed him, but I don't look at him as an enemy. I, do, I don't look at him as a rival. I look at him as a potential partner and I regret very much that here he didn't have that strength, inner strength to overcome the obsessions and the, uh, and the prejudices and the fears that dominated him considering the history and the uh, events which took place in his lifetime between Jews and Palestinians. Very sad. But a a person I'm in touch with, I will continue to be in touch with, and I will continue to respect, even at a time that I entirely disagree with some of his policies. But do I agree with the policies of every other leader, either outside of Israel or even inside the state of Israel? No.
0: Thank you. Can you comment on your response to Syria's nuclear reactor? what lessons does your response to Syria's nuclear reactor teach us in regard to how to handle Iran's nuclear program? Can you comment on your response to the Syrian nuclear reactor?
2: Look, um, when I found out, uh, when I got the information from Mossad, that uh, about the atomic reactor in Syria, there was an atomic reactor being built for quite a time, and it was near completion at the time that we found out about it, and its nature, and every detail about it, uh, by uh, a very daring and extraordinary operation of uh, the fighters of Mossad, and it was brought. I, I, I mean, I authorized this operation ahead, and then of course they brought to me the intelligence back, and when I saw it, I knew one thing: this atomic reactor will be destroyed. We will not allow. Anyone to build, and this was a plutonic atomic reactor, which meant that there was only one use for this plutonic reactor to build an atomic bomb. There could be no excuse that this is for civilian use because this was plutonic, and there is only one purpose for a plutonic reaction reactor, and this is the uh, creation of an atomic bomb. So I said, No way, I will, uh, we will destroy it. Then, of course, uh, the question was how to destroy it, how to avoid a, a comprehensive war between us and Syria, how to uh, to uh, do it in the best possible manner so that uh, the outcome will be for, uh, exactly what we want and the, uh, it will not require any uh, further confrontations, military confrontations with Syria. Uh, there was a time that I wanted America to attack not because I thought that we can do it. I knew that Israel can do it better than anyone, perhaps even better than America. But I thought that it could have been a very important signal for America to give not just to Syria, but in that context also to Iran, saying whenever we find that someone is trying to build atomic bomb, we, America, will not allow it and we will use our force and destroy it. And now we did it with Syria, but you guys in Iran, we don't have to explain to you what it means to you. That is, if you want to understand the connection, but uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense at that time, Bob Gates and others influenced the president not to pursue this line. So I said to the president, okay, president, I understand that you don't want to do it. That's fine with me. I will do it. The president wanted me to take another route, but I said, president, Responsibility for Israel's existence and security primarily lies on my shoulders, and this is what I will do, and I will do it, and that will be it. And I did it. Now, the difference between uh, Syria and Iran is dramatic. Number one, the Syrians were building an atomic reactor, which was meant to create an atomic uh, bomb, and there was no question about it and no doubt about it. We can't say the same about uh, Iran at this stage, number one. Number two, the the reactor was near completion. Had we waited, it may have been warmed and may have been operative. And at that time to destroy uh, the uh, acting, uh, working uh, atomic reactor could have meant such a contamination uh, of uh, territories, particularly near the the river Euphrates which would mean the the contamination of the entire river with an unbelievable historic responsibility for everyone that will die ever near the river. That I didn't want to wait, which is not the same with Iran. And also Iran is not Syria. Iran is a a superpower in many ways. And it's a distance of 2000 kilometers from Israel and uh, they don't have one facility which contains all the atomic preparations. They have many facilities, and so the direct military attack in Iran is so much harder, more difficult, and perhaps almost impossible in comparison to uh, what we could do in Syria. Therefore, the comparison is not valid. There are many things that we could do in order to stop this atomic uh, program of Iran. Many were done in the past and therefore, although the anticipation originally was that in 2008, they will have an atomic bomb, we are in 2022, almost uh, f- 14 years uh, afterwards, and they still don't, are not yet close to atomic bomb. I think that what President Biden is doing, and what President Obama did was uh, fundamentally the right thing. And the agreement could have been better and more more uh, uh, include, inclusive of all the different possible dangers inherent in this situation. I hope that uh, the agreement Biden is about to sign now will be uh, even better. But I am in favour of an American control over this process rather than. And Israeli, uh, because I think that uh, this is first and foremost the responsibility of America. And I trust President Biden when he says that he will never allow Iran to have nuclear power.
0: What was your relationship like with President George W. Bush? And if you had more time in power, how would you have handled Israel's relationship with President Obama differently than it transpired?
2: Number one, I I uh, liked, I loved President George W. Bush. We became very good friends. Uh, we were really had uh, wonderful relationships, uh, and uh, I think that he's a very personal, very very warm, very smart, very sophisticated uh, person. Very decent, very trustworthy. I I I thought that he didn't deserve some of the mockery and the criticism that he got at the beginning of his term, when I got to know him, I actually knew him before I was uh, a prime minister and before he was president. He reminded me uh, in the first time that uh, he called me when I became acting prime minister. He said to me, uh, hey, buddy, uh, when we first met, I was governor and you were mayor. Now I'm president and you are acting prime minister. Uh, that's a, some kind of a change. Wow, Uh, uh, And uh, since then, we had many, many talks. We used to talk a lot on the phone. We met many times, I guess, that in the period that I was Prime Minister, he met me more than he met met perhaps any other leader in in the world. And uh, I had enormous respect for him and gratitude for his support, for his assistance, for his involvement, for his care for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel. Unfortunately, the Jews in America didn't respond uh, and likewise uh, in terms of uh, their voting pattern, uh, but this is something that relates to uh, internal American politics. Uh, the, um, uh, The attitude of Netanyahu to Obama was outrageous and obnoxious, and I said it from the very beginning. I think that Obama is an historical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. of uh, you know, unbelievable proportions. Uh, an Afro-American that crossed all the, the uh, glass ceilings that were made to stop people like him. And uh, everywhere he was, he was, uh, he was outstanding in his achievements. In high school, in university, a, 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 in Harvard, at the a, editor-in-chief of the Harvard uh, Law uh, Magazine, which is something that has never been done before. As a senator, a short period of time that he was senator and as president, the healing of America, the, uh, the, the ability to pull America out of a crisis, which has uh, influenced the life of America uh, at the end of 2008. Uh, his uh, outstanding ability to reach out for different factions of the population, uniting rather than dividing. Uh, we, we were together for a short period of time, they overlapped the time that I was about to leave and he was just coming in. And we used to talk a lot on the telephone. I, I liked him, I, I uh, respected him and his uh, wife and his entire family. I think that this was uh, really uh, the most unbelievable political uh, uh, development that brought him to the White House. And I mean, this was first and foremost, the most unbelievable talent and brilliance of this outstanding person. And I thought that, uh, unfortunately, the Prime Minister of Israel and my might that succeeded me, Netanyahu made every possible effort to uh, antagonize and to uh, conflict with uh, President Obama. Regrettably, it didn't help the state of Israel. And they uh, just to, uh, I think in conclusion to our very exciting meeting, I can say that in spite of the fact that the Israeli prime minister did everything in order to insult and antagonize the United States president, the American president, uh, Barack Obama, did everything that he could in order to support the state of Israel, to support the security of the state of Israel, to give us political and military assistance that was needed. And I can't but say that on behalf of millions of Israelis, I'm grateful for what he did.
0: One final question I would ask you, uh, being respectful of the time, is if you had extra time as prime minister, how would the Middle East look different? How would Israel's relationships With the Palestinians, how would Israeli domestic society have looked different if you had more time?
2: I believe that had I been uh, prime minister for another half a year, there would have been peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Everything in the Middle East would have been dramatically different. We would have been living now over 10 years in peace between us and the Palestinians. I don't say, and I never say, and I never pretended even to suggest that had we signed peace with the Palestinians overnight, there would have been uh, a different life without terror, without threats, without fears, without hatred. Uh, It would have taken a lot more time to pull out from this uh, uh, status that we were in and the Palestinians were in for so many years uh, under occupation from their side. We are with the terror and the hatred from their side So, but peace would have started a revolutionary change that would have changed the entire Middle East. Uh, uh, By then, uh, already there, there would have been, the Abraham Accords would have been signed 10 years earlier, the relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia and all the other Emirates would have been uh, formal diplomatic relations uh, with countries like Indonesia, like Malaysia, like uh, North African countries, everywhere. Everything would have been different. It was as close as, as, as you know, what can I tell you? Uh, millimeters of an agreement. Unfortunately, uh, the, uh, I was forced to leave because of my uh, investigations, as you well know, and graciously not asked me about, but I have to say I had to retire. Uh, doesn't matter that I, uh, and subsequently I, uh, after I retired, I was indicted and convicted for getting illegal uh, political uh, contributions, uh, something that uh, never really happened. Uh, And uh, I never, uh, I couldn't comprehend how I could have been uh, uh, convicted for something that I I never was part of, never came to me, the money was not ever uh, found. There was no evidence that there was money, that there were contributions, whatever. Uh, It's a bizarre story, but it doesn't matter. I was convicted, so I had to serve my time in uh, prison, which I did, and uh, and, uh, peace was lost. And uh, and uh, I think that this was a great loss uh, for the future of the people of uh, Israel and the future of the Palestinians in the Middle East and the future of the stability and the uh, and the uh, dramatic uh, change of the quality of life between uh, in the uh, our part of the world. But th- this is life, and uh, there is only one way to uh, deal with it, to be strong enough to absorb it, and to be optimistic enough to look forward and, uh, and uh, never forget what happened, but focus on what can happen and what can be done. I always remember uh, what uh, I think uh, uh, Robert Foster, American poet wrote and. a, a, a Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy used to recite many times. They said, there are people who think uh, about things that were and ask why. And I dream of things that never happened and ask why not. And this is what guides me in my life and gives me the power and the strength to carry on. And thank you very much for inviting me for this exciting.
0: Thank you. It was my absolute honor. I was blessed to talk to you. I loved how much I learned from you. And I loved reading this book. It was a fascinating memoir and will go down as a significant contribution to the historical record when your time in office is studied by academics like myself and others.
2: Thank you very much, Ari. Thank you. Thank for you. A